I'm going to look a little bit at the doctrine of Scientology tonight, where it started, um, how people get into it. And you may be asking the question tonight, why are we doing something like this? What is the profit? Is there some sort of biblical mandate to do this kind of thing? If you have your Bible with you, and I hope you do, turn to Colossians chapter 2. As we've been going through the book of Colossians, we are going to be reminded of a key passage that we've already studied that is very relevant to our topic tonight. And I will tell you this, that the major portion of people who are in Scientology or have come out of Scientology tonight are people who say they have a background in uh, Protestant Christianity. Uh, in fact, uh, something like 40-something percent of those who have been in Scientology say, I think it's about 46% say they have a Protestant Christian background, and about another 26% say they have a Roman Catholic background. Uh, when they interview uh, professing Scientologists, they say they still consider themselves Christians. So we do have some confusion, don't we? When people can be in a system like this, which we'll describe tonight, and some of it is just going to blow your mind if you haven't been exposed to it, but I do want to say as much as we'll be tempted to even giggle at some of the stuff that's believed tonight, we're not coming at it with a heart to joke about people or to beat on people. Those who have gotten into Scientology, when they're interviewed, say they were hungry to find answers to life's deepest questions. They were somehow brought into this system that promised them answers. And unfortunately, once they got deep into it, they found that it wasn't producing those answers, producing, but producing something just the opposite. Producing fear, entrapment, legalism, uh, scare tactics. I mean, uh, there, there are people, in fact, the, the leader of Scientology's father, who left the organization some years back, wrote a book called Ruthless, and that's how he would describe the Church of Scientology. So to speak out against this group, you know, you kind of, you, you, there's some backlash that can happen. And uh, that's why we're going we're to come to this with a heart of compassion. And I, I want you to see Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. Let's pray one more time, and then we'll take a look. Father, as we uh, get into this subject matter tonight, we, we realize that every time we tackle something like this, we're really in the devil's territory. He's a master counterfeiter and a liar. He's a murderer from the beginning. He operates in, uh, often in religious circles, but with lies that move people away from the hope and the truth of the gospel. And our prayer is that eyes would be open and lives would be set free. You tell us you're the seeker and the saver of those who are lost. And, you know, a lot of prodigals are in Scientology tonight. They've walked away from the Christian church out the back door and into the front door of Scientology, often under many front groups' names like Narconon and Wise and other things that sound good. Some people took a personality test and found themselves inside Scientology. But I pray, Father, that if there are folks here that are wrestling with this, these subjects, if they have family members that are still in Scientology, maybe they've just recently come out, or maybe they're even wrestling with whether or not they can leave, I pray that you would open their eyes to who you are, that you love them with an amazing love. You're willing to go to the cross for them, and, and I pray that tonight you'll lead us by your Holy Spirit and show us what you want us to see. In Jesus' holy name I pray, amen. When Paul writes Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy 
and empty deception according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. At the higher echelons of Scientology, L. Ron Hubbard, whenever he brought up Christ, he spoke about him in derogatory terms. In fact, L. Ron Hubbard claimed that he had gone to a level called OT3, I think, at the time, which at the time was supposed to be the highest you could go, and he said that he looked down on Jesus Christ. In his own words, Jesus was just above clear, and I'll explain what that means. So L. Ron Hubbard was above Jesus. And, you know, when you look at Colossians 2, 9, here's what Paul is saying. He says, for in him, in Jesus, is the context, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him, if you are in him, you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. If you've watched the specials on A&E, and you hear the hearts of the people that got into Scientology, they said, well, it offered me purpose. In L. Ron Hubbard's own words, he said, it gives man the ability, quote-unquote, to solve his own problems. And L. Ron Hubbard had problems. If you look at his life, he was not a great ethical leader, to say the least. He got involved in some black magic in his life in the 1950s. In fact, the group that he got involved with, he actually stole away the chief magician's girlfriend, told her that he was single while he was still married, ran her off to another state, and in this, Jack Parsons is the gentleman's name, in his correspondences that have been uh, you know, discovered and made known, he said basically that L. Ron Hubbard stole his girlfriend. When L. Ron Hubbard was at the end of his life, he was known to be very paranoid, he would ask for his carpet in his office to be vacuumed sometimes up to 10 times a day. Uh, he thought all kinds of people were after him. And so when you begin to see the organization's personality, all you have to do is take a closer look at L. Ron Hubbard and you can see that he was kind of a, a strange individual who came up with a lot of strange ideas. What I'm going to do is take you through an acronym called HEART, H-E-A-R-T, I'll, I'll describe what that means in a second. We'll go through each of the letters. We're going to look at L. Ron Hubbard. We're going to look at engrams and auditing and things like that. But I do want to tell you that there's a lot of broken hearts right now in the fallout of Scientology. One reporter, Lawrence Wright, said that Scientology is hemorrhaging. Uh, it is bleeding. And in many ways, it is dying. It is people poor but real estate rich. Scientology owns an incredible amount of property all over the world. They're an extremely wealthy organization, and that is because the average Scientology basic course will cost you $650. And that's just to begin. Leah Remini says she has spent millions of dollars on Scientology courses over the last 20, 30 years. And each person that you talk to and you hear their story says they have spent, you know, at least a minimum of $250,000 on Scientology courses. And once you go through the courses, they just you know, tell you you've got to do more, you've got to do more, you've got to do more. On the positive end, I will tell you that some movie stars like Kirstie Alley and Jerry Seinfeld said that they found some benefits in Scientology courses. Jerry Seinfeld, for example, says that it made him a more confident stand-up comedian. Kirstie Alley says that she kicked a cocaine addiction by going through auditing at Scientology uh, facilities. She said, if you can get rid of your negative engrams, and I'll explain what that means in a moment, you can get better. 
Now, my understanding is that Jerry Seinfeld, along with people like Will Smith and others, dabbled in Scientology courses, but then left the religion. But the face of Scientology, if you were to put a movie star's face on it tonight, you would say it is Tom Cruise. And some of you have seen some of the exploits of Tom Cruise and his interviews and some of the strange things that uh, he has said while he's been interviewed. I was listening to a uh, Bible Answer Man broadcast many years ago, and Hank Hanegraaff, if you go to the book of Acts for a second, Acts chapter 20, Acts 20, Hank Hanegraaff was interviewing Keith and Sean Scott. Keith and Sean Scott, former members, former Scientologists who came out of the religion, and uh, as uh, Hank Hanegraaff was interviewing them, he was talking to them about all that was going on in Scientology and all the problems that were going on there. And the, the broken hearts and the tears that were happening in individuals. And Hank read this passage, Acts 20, look at verse 28. As Paul says, Be on guard for yourselves, Acts 20, 28, and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish or warn each one of you with tears. You need to understand that when the church historically has done apologetics, there's been a couple of major reasons for it. One is to defend the historic Christian faith against heretics and those who would try to change essential Christian doctrine, but the other reason was to keep the church from moving away into strange doctrines. Think about it. The book of Colossians is written to a group of Christians, and Paul's saying, see to it that you're not pulled away into empty deception. It seems to me that these things were written because the reality does exist that Christians, at least professing Christians, can somehow get hooked into these systems. Why do they do that? Sometimes they have a bad experience at a Christian church. Sometimes they don't have the grounding in the faith once for all delivered to the saints. So somebody comes along and makes similar promises and say, oh yeah, you can be a Christian and still be a Scientologist. And all of a sudden somebody finds themselves in a bad situation. As Hank Hanegraaff interviewed Keith and Sean Scott, a woman who proclaimed herself as a Scientologist called the program which is always fantastic when you're doing a program like this and you get a living, breathing Scientologist. And her name was Vivian. And she said, I'm a Scientologist and you're doing great harm to this planet by speaking out against Scientology. And so Hank paused for a moment and said, okay, we've got Vivian on the line. She's a Scientologist. It was almost as if to say to the listening audience, pray, pray, and pray some more. And they, and they asked her, what level are you at? And she said, I'm a clear and she said, that, that means I've arrived and, you know, to the sta status of erasing all the negative stuff out of my past life and past lives. And I've cleared the, the blackboard and I have a book on the Buddha and I have a Bible in my home, she said. And Hank said, well, what do you believe about Jesus Christ, ma'am? And she says, I believe he was a great one. He said, well, ma'am, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. John 14, 6. What do you think about that? And she said, sir, that's your opinion. And he said, ma'am, that's not my opinion. That's what Jesus Christ said. 
So she kind of squirmed a little bit on the phone because she was hit between the eyes with a very exclusive statement on the part of Jesus Christ, which is that he's the only way to God. L. Ron Hubbard said, no, you've got to climb this ladder uh, of pretty much self-achievement to get to the level of clear, and then you can basically rid yourself of your body and you can move on. You can move on to greater and greater levels. So I've got some slides for you tonight, and uh, I'm going to take you through a few things, but I mentioned to you that Scientology is people poor but property rich. This is an example of one of their buildings, a uh, Scientology building. They have uh, celebrity centers. Early on in the religion in the 1950s, L. Ron Hubbard was trying to recruit movie stars. He wanted movie stars to lend credibility to the religion. So he had a list of targets, quote-unquote, of movie stars that he was going after at the time to give credibility to Scientology. So you may be asking, why does John Travolta or Kirstie Alley or people like this, Tom Cruise, get involved in this religion? Well, Scientology has a very, very much uh, a bent towards getting these faces in front of cameras to give credibility to their religion, and this is exactly what they do. This is the compound that they have just outside of Hemet, California, it's a sprawling compound, 500 acres of property. This is where the top executives of uh, Scientology spend their time working. But they have, uh, members of the Church of Scientology have said that on a weekly basis, people are trying to jump the fence. And if you'll notice up in the upper right-hand corner, those are some pretty serious barbed wire fences. Because almost on a weekly basis, people who are in the top brass of the organization try to escape this compound at night. And they, they go into a military type of drill with sirens and lights and personnel that they go and chase down individuals who jump the fence. And if you get caught, you are put in manual labor, sometimes scrubbing the floor with a toothbrush for long hours. And they even on this property have a place called The Hole, uh, there's a man named Mike Rinder who was part of the top brass of Scientology and uh, he was put in the hole for two years of his life. And it's a couple of little trailers where you just basically try to exist on this property. One of the men who tried to escape uh, by night uh, tells his story and he said he was on a motorcycle trying to get away and uh, a van came and it was uh, representatives from the Church of Scientology and they ran him off the road uh, to try to stop him from leaving this organization. They can be extremely ruthless and uh, they even say in some of the specials that I've been just watching recently that they chased down a person all the way to South Africa and brought them back to the headquarters. My goodness. So they get very desperate and uh, very controlling, and I want to give you just a little bit on the nature of cults, and we're going to have to move quickly, but um, if you're new to this language, when we talk about a cult, uh, a cult, in a basic way, is just any group that polarizes around a certain set of beliefs, but the origin of the word for cult is cultus in Latin, and here's the characteristics of a cult. From a theological perspective, they have a false basis of salvation. They typically say you've got to earn your way to salvation, so it puts people under a lot of pressure to think that they've got to do certain things or take certain steps. They have a false basis of authority. 
typically around a charismatic leader's views or his writings. David Miscavige is now the leader of Scientology. He's a very charismatic leader, and by the way, apparently a very violent man. He regularly uh, has gone after fellow, uh, they're not fellow employees because they're under him. He's considered the Pope of Scientology, and there are people coming out telling their stories that he has physically abused them. In, in fact, Mike Rinder said he physically abused Mike Rinder 50 to 100 times. And I'm talking about punches in the face, pushing them against the wall, tearing their clothes, craziness that's going on behind the doors. One gal that was recently interviewed who was in the top brass said, if we have all the answers to the world's problems and we've got the key to unlock the door, why is it that behind these doors in the higher echelon of our so-called clergy, people are beating up each other? So, uh, there was a group of people who walked into a room Somebody uh, did a typo on a magazine that was supposed to go out, and it was late, and a group of people beat up this individual. And they say that they do this because there's a fear factor that if you don't do it to that person, it'll happen to you. So there's, there's uh, now physical abuse cases coming out. And one uh, quote that I heard from a Scientologist, former Scientologist that came out is that there is no unconditional love in Scientology. None. You get into the group, and it becomes very difficult. A cult, from a psychological standpoint, practices a few major things. Isolation and over-involvement. They will confine members, cut them off from family, practice economic exploitation, keep you basically poor, give you, uh, put you in an enslaved structure, no or little pay. And uh, they will say to you, they, pro they uh, practice esotericism, which is, they basically hide under front groups. Narconon is actually a front group for Scientology. And you can get you know, help with your drug addiction, but the problem is it's a Scientology situation. Leah Remini is a typical case these days. She grew up as a Scientologist. So as a little girl, her mom began to practice the religion, and so she was in it. And she said that when she was doing the King of Queens program that ran, and it's still running, uh, you know, rebroadcasts are still running of it. She said when people would go on vacation to Hawaii and the Bahamas, she would go back to Scientology headquarters and spend, get this, nine in the morning to ten at night studying Scientology, 18 books by L. Ron Hubbard, uh, 18 main books, about 30,000 recorded lectures that you need to listen to from L. Ron Hubbard, and two and a half hours a day of counseling through an auditor. Nine in the morning till ten at night every day of your life. Here she is, a successful movie actress or sitcom actress. And this, is, this was her life behind the scenes. She was in a prison trapped in this religion. That unfortunately has a lot of people who have Christian backgrounds. In 1 Thessalonians 5.21, Paul said, examine everything carefully and hold fast to that which is good. You've got to test things and hold fast to that which is good. And, and cultic movements will manipulate your time. They will put pressure on you. They will uh, say to you that the only way that you can really you know, be saved or get to the higher levels if, is if you stay in our group. And they have what's called the C organization, 
The Sea Organization is the top brass for Scientology. They dress in naval uniforms because L. Ron Hubbard has a military background. We'll talk about it in a second. The Sea Organization here, they sign a billion-year contract. They sign their life away to serve Scientology for a billion years. And the reason it's a billion-year contract is because they believe that you live life uh, in reincarnation over and over and over and over again. So they've committed themselves for as long as they are on the wheel of reincarnation to serve the organization of Scientology. Scientology says its ultimate goal is a civilization without insanity, without criminals, and without war, where the able can prosper and honest beings can have rights and where man is free to rise to greater heights. That doesn't sound so bad, does it? A world where there's no more war and no more problems. So when you talk to a Scientologist and you say to them, why are you in this group? If you say to them this is a cult, they'll probably immediately sh uh, not listen to you because they believe they've been sold that the planet's going to be helped if they will just stick with Scientology, and this is what they do. There's many, many books coming out uh, of former Scientologists who have uh, left the religion and are telling their stories, and some of them say they can't even get on the internet and look up Scientology for a year or two. They have to kind of go through a program where they, they, they just, they have to detox is really what it is because their, their whole life, their language, their buzzwords were all around this religion. So we're going to move through this acronym called HEART and there's many broken hearts in Scientology. We'll look at L. Ron Hubbard, engrams in the E-meter, auditing, reincarnation, and then we'll look at the idea of a Thetan and uh, when we conclude, and we're, we're going to conclude around 7.45, I'm hoping to have 15 minutes of Q&A, and I want to remind you to use the app to ask questions that you may have. The H in our acronym tonight, if you're taking notes, is Hubbard. L. Ron Hubbard, his name is Lafayette Ronald Hubbard. He was born on March 13, 1911 in Tilden, Nebraska. He was raised in Montana. And Hubbard became a popular science fiction or pulp fiction writer in the 1930s and 40s. He changed venues midstream by announcing at a New Jersey science fiction convention, writing for a penny a word is ridiculous. The pulps or the pulp fiction writers were, they were paid a penny a word. So if you could sit at a typewriter and type a lot of words, you made more money. You got paid literally a penny a word. So people who saw L. Ron Hubbard in his writing career said he would sit at a typewriter, he could type extremely fast, he would sit there and perspire at his typewriter, and he would pump out thousands and thousands of words because every word was worth money to him. And so he was a prolific writer. In fact, he is in the Guinness Book of World Records, and he holds the record for the most books published. He published over a thousand books in his lifetime. And he did it largely based upon this idea that the, uh, he had to make money. The church says he was an adventurous young man. He was to a degree, but the stories are embellished about uh, L. Ron Hubbard. He went off to the Navy, and the official church records say he was injured in the war, that he was blinded and crippled, get this, and used self-help techniques on himself to heal himself. This is the basis by which he has uh, brought the idea to the world that you can help yourself by the power from within. But through the Freedom of Information Act, people like Lawrence Wright from the New Yorker and others went and got the official records from the military. And it doesn't say that he was blinded and crippled in the war, 
The military medical records do, uh, say this, that he had ulcers and conjunctivitis. And so, uh, obviously, the record was quite embellished. And this story is believed by many Scientologists today that he was blind and crippled and healed himself. But that is a lie. And uh, he had some, obviously, some minor problems and spent some time in the hospital. And so, in 1950, in one month, he wrote a 450-page book called Dianetics. And here's some pictures of L. Ron Hubbard. And he, uh, he is no longer with us, and I'll tell you about that in a second. But he wrote this book called Dianetics, and this is a, about a 450-page book with his principles in it, his self-help principles. And the, the book uh, flew to number one on the New York Times bestseller list, and Dianetics groups began to pop up everywhere. And people were employing these self-help methods by L. Ron Hubbard. L. Ron Hubbard became an instant millionaire, but then after that, lost all his money. I'm not sure how he lost all of his money, but uh, he wasn't really the most moral man, so I don't know what happened. But as I mentioned to you, he got involved in a Pasadena-based Pasadena occult group led by Jack Parsons, who was a disciple of Aleister Crowley. And I bring this up because it seems to me that people who start these kinds of religions often dabble on the dark side, if you will. They dabble with the occult, but there is a quote that's been floating around there, and it's been, uh, it's been objected to by Scientologists, but here's the famous quote, and it's come up over and over again. L. Ron Hubbard saying, if you want to make a million dollars in the United States, just start a religion. That's the quote, and he did it. And other uh, writers of his time who were in his genre said they heard him say it on multiple occasions. If you want to make... You want to become a millionaire in America, just start a religion, and that's exactly what he did. So throughout his 36-year career as founder and source of Dianetics and Scientology, uh, he was convinced that he faced uh, sinister conspiracies and that uh, people were you know, trying to grab power and that kind of thing. He was paranoid, but people began to embrace this, and Scientology groups were uh, coming up all over the place, and... Uh, Hubbard spent his final years in seclusion from the public eye and died medically of a stroke. But they said that in the, uh, they did a, a funeral service for him. And when he was um, spoken about, it basically said he decided to discard his body to go and discover higher OT levels and do more research. So they didn't want to say he died of a stroke because that didn't sound too great. So that's what he said. But his death certificate says he died... January 24th, 1986, succumbed to a cerebral vascular accident, which means a stroke. January 24th, 1986, L. Ron Hubbard discovered that what he thought about Jesus Christ was wrong, dead wrong. And see, this is what happens with a lot of movements. Movements can have practical benefits for people. They can be pragmatic, if you will, but in the end... It's not only if you can live with your worldview, it's if you can die with it. And so he, L. Ron Hubbard, one of the things that he did is institute a fair game policy. Anybody that speaks out against the religion is fair game. And if you've heard some of these stories, and many of you have, they've even gone into government buildings and stole documents. They have harassed people. They have uh, all kinds of abuse allegations against the church. This, this organization... Uh, can be no less than ruthless. 
In fact, Hubbard has been described as a malignant narcissist. Uh, the work of the Guardian's office that he developed in the, I think, in the 70s and 80s and 90s went after a woman named Paulette uh, Cooper and tried to frame her uh, for crimes. They discovered all of this, and this is the only reason that she wasn't put in jail. Paulette Cooper uh, was framed for trying to blow up government buildings, and they discovered Scientology documents where they, they saw the communications where they were trying to frame her because she was speaking out against the group. This is how ruthless that they can be running people off the roads, setting people up, framing people. They say they canceled the fair game policy years ago, but they definitely still practice it. So that is L. Ron Hubbard, the founder of Scientology. Let's go to the next one. Um, this is n-grams of the e-meter. The acronym is HART. The H is Hubbard. The E is n-grams of the e-meter. This is the famous e-meter. And I have the Campbell soup cans, and I have to give my wife credit because she came up with this. Uh, you know, I could never do this kind of work, but my wife did it. But I put the Campbell soup cans up there because in the original e-meter that was developed by L. Ron Hubbard that they use in counseling sessions, they used Campbell soup cans and just took the wrappers off of them. And they put little wires from a so-called machine, and you hold on to the soup cans, which now have developed into this more uh, sophisticated wow. machine, and it's supposed to read and measure your spotty sweat. And it's something like an e-meter, uh, something like a lie detector. So they say it's about one-third of a lie detector. So when you grab onto these handles and you start to be interviewed by an auditor in Scientology, can you imagine the amount of pressure? L. Ron Hubbard said the machine is never wrong. So you hold on to, the, to this machine and an auditor is on the other side of the desk measuring your responses. And what they're always looking for is why you have the problems that you have today. They're always trying to get into your past life, what they call your crimes. What are your crimes? Maybe you've been unethical lately. Maybe you've had bad thoughts about the leader of Scientology. Maybe you've had bad thoughts about L. Ron Hubbard. Maybe you've done this or done that. And they grill people and people are holding these cans, if you will, with pressure being taught that this machine will always reveal the truth of your answers or if you're telling a lie. And the average Scientologist spends two and a half hours a day holding the cans. Can you imagine the power that an auditor has over an individual? And this is what happens. And so people who have been in these auditing sessions say that sometimes they just started making stuff up because it's almost, imagine like, it's almost like a police interrogation room where they're trying to get a confession out of somebody. Let's say you're innocent. They keep you there for hours until you'll finally fess up to something. And you're so manipulated psychologically that you just say stuff to try to get out of that room. And that's what happened. And it's happening to people right now. And so they say that this uh, idea of engrams and uh, the e-meter will help you free yourself from these uh, life experiences that are painful. You say, well, what is an engram, Pastor Michael? I think I'm having one right now. <laughs> anyway, Scientologists say that an engram is a type of impression imprinted on the protoplasm of the cell itself. These mental pictures are in turn the cause of our emotional and even many physical problems today. They can only be dislodged through Scientology and specifically the e-meter and auditing sessions. 
So you have all these what they call negative engrams, which is painful past life experiences or experiences that you had in your own current life. And to dislodge the painful engrams and make you free, you've got to go through these counseling sessions over and over again. And they'll read the e-meter and say, no, you haven't told me everything. There's got to be something else. Maybe it's in a past life. Maybe it happened when you were a fish or a clam. And I'm not joking. And so people, they try to go back and figure out why the machine's saying this about me. I've got more negative engrams. How far back does this painful engram go? Some Scientologists say that they're able to remember being a sperm or even the egg eagerly waiting to be met by the sperm. Get this. Hubbard's theory never really makes it clear, at least in a manner that would be accepted by most medical doctors, exactly how engrams can be planted uh, before a fetus has developed a nervous system, for example, or, the, or sense organs, etc. But they say, no, this, this impression does happen, and we can retain or remember verbal statements before. Uh, and so it's something like this. Scientologists simply accept this theory on faith. If a husband, for example, here's an example given, beats his wife, his pregnant wife, and shouts, take that, take that, and he hits her, a take that engram can be planted in the womb. Thus, when Junior grows up, he might react to this statement literally and become a thief whose goal is to take that. Now, I just quoted L. Ron Hubbard's writings and thoughts on these things. So a take that engram is a negative impression even when you were in the womb. And now you start taking stuff because of it. And this is what explains your problems. You got problems? Here's why. You may not know what happened, but this happened or that happened, right? This almost sounds like a weird twist on the word faith movement, doesn't it? Where they don't want you to say any negative words or make any negative confessions. Don't say I'm sick or don't say that that tickled me to death. Oh, that's a negative confession, right? That, this is more of new age stuff than it is Christianity. So you can have a negative engram uh, in this life, in the womb, or even in, in a past life. Hubbard used to believe that the Phaeton or the spirit, which we'll talk about in a second, existed 74 trillion years, but he now believes it's even longer. One Scientologist claims he fell out of a spaceship about 55 trillion, trillion, trillion years ago, and he became a manta ray fish, having been killed by one. This is literally from a counseling engram session. This thetan, which is said to be one quarter to two inches in diameter and blind or dismited at first, would look for a new body after each death sometimes following a woman who looked like she might be pregnant. Some thetans, however, had to go to implant stations to get a new body. And since there were, no, there were more thetans than bodies, some of them had to queue up and wait at a holding station for 22 million years, waiting for the next available uh, body. Scientologists, Scientologists believe that past lives and deaths of their thetans are the cause of some of their problems today. For example, Hubbard thought it's possible that someone suffering from uh, psoriasis, a skin disease, may have contracted it from the remains of the digestive fluid when the person or his thetan was being eaten by an animal in one of his past lives. If a person frequently clenches his jaws or suffers from a pain there or in his tooth, it could be a vestige from the days that his thetan was in the body of a primeval clam. Sorry, <laughs> which... I'm just reading, which was having trouble opening and closing its shell. Hubbard said that if the pain in the jaw was associated with a fear of falling, then the clam might have been picked up by a bird. 
Hubbard believes that millions of years ago, many of us were this same primeval clam, which he calls the boohoo or the grim weeper. And if a Scientology walks into an aud- Scientologist walks into an auditing session and finds that he can't cry, Hubbard said it may be because he is about to be hit by a wave, has his eyes full of sand, or is frightened about opening his shell because he is afraid of being hit. The auditor may try to cure him by making him run the boo-hoo, that is, by getting him to either imagine that his eyes are in his mouth looking out, or to go through physical uh, motions of crying so he connects with the grim grim weeper or boo-hoo. Hubbard himself doesn't claim to have been a clam, but he does claim to have lived in ancient Rome a couple thousand years ago where he picked up a formula for feeding non-breastfed babies. He has since passed this formula on to his followers in one of his many chatty newsletters. These are just some examples of things that come out. And a person can be sitting in an auditing session and there's a breakdown that happens. One man described he's in an auditing session. The auditor says to him, get up out of your chair. He gets up. They say, walk to the wall. He walks to the wall. They say, touch the wall. He touches the wall. They say, turn around. He turns around. They say, sit down. He sits down. He says, get up. He gets up. Walk to the wall. You walk to the wall. Touch the wall. He touches the wall. Turn around. He turns around. Come back and sit down. He sits down. He said he was in a counseling session where they they would do this to him over and over again. He said, I realized it was a form of brainwashing. It was making me hyper-suggestible to anything that this person might put on the table that I might believe. And so the goal of Scientology is get, to get to a level of clear. And you go through this auditing and you, you, you bring up all these past life pains and things, whether they're real or imagined, to get to the status of clear, which is to erase the blackboard of all negative engrams of past life experiences. Once you get to the level of clear, you can now move forward to what they call OT levels. You become what's called an operating phaeton. And now you can begin to control your own reality. So you have Hubbard, you have engrams, you have auditing. And, of course, Scientology believes in a form of reincarnation or rebirth. They believe you've lived probably millions and millions of lives. That's why if you shun your family in Scientology, it's not that big of a deal because you are going to have many mothers. You've already had many mothers and fathers in past lives. And you're sure to have many more. So your family is not that important. You're just going to live over and over again anyway. And so somehow if you arrive to this level of clear, Hubbard says it improves your eyesight, stops your ear ringing, increases your IQ, cures the common cold, speeds thinking computations to 120 times faster than normal and saves marriages. L. Ron Hubbard becomes the deliverer of the human soul by getting to this point where you are clear. Mary Kahn got to level 8, OT level 8. Um, Leah Remini says she got to some pretty high levels, and she says, anybody that knows me knows I'm as messed up as I've, as I've ever been. <laughs> it, this hasn't helped me. In fact, it's giving, given a lot of people more and more problems because they go deeper and deeper into this, this uh, movement that sadly often charges people $800 an hour to be interrogated in these auditing sessions. Let me just repeat that. an hour to be hooked up to a machine and to be basically interrogated until you confess your crimes to these people. If you go into, uh, as a brand new person to Scientology, you're called a pre-clear. 
And you got to get to the point of clear, and that's why you take all these classes. And uh, you're trying to free yourself from the wheel of reincarnation. You want to get off the wheel. That's what Eastern religion teaches. There's this wheel of reincarnation, and you're born and you die, and you're born and you die. And it ties to ideas of karma and performance and legalism and that kind of thing. And so you got to get off the wheel. And it's the Scientology courses that can get you off the wheel. And so that's why people are just desperate. In 1950, Hubbard rented the Shrine Auditorium in Los Angeles, estimated crowd of 4,000, to come and see the world's first clear, her name, Miss Sonia Bianca, a physics student from Boston. Fitting with Dianetic Theory, Hubbard announced that she had perfect recall. She could remember every moment of her life. When members of the audience questioned her, she could not remember basic physics. She was a physics student, by the way. Physics formulas, nor the color of, Hub of Hubbard's necktie which she had seen moments before. People began leaving the auditorium as they threw more taunting questions at Bianca. Hubbard quickly explained that he had accidentally placed her in the now by calling her to come out now. He put her in a negative engram on her, and that's why she failed the test. So you get to this point of clear, and you have this expectation that you're going to be clear of all this negative stuff, and you're just the same old person you used to be. And then they say, oh, here's why. you got to repeat the course. We missed something. Or you got to confess something. Let's go back, hold the cans again. And you go back through an auditing session because it's always your fault. And so he got his influences from the Hindu Vedas, Taoism, Buddhism, Judaism, Gnosticism, early Greek civilization. This is why it's so fitting with Colossians 2.8. It's like an early form of the Colossian, or a later form of the Colossian heresy. And so here's the reincarnation thing. You've got to uh, get off the wheel. Scientology's view of reincarnation includes extraterrestrial life, evolution on other planets, evolution on Earth, implant stations, and all of that. Hubbard said, life is a game, and that is about the only thing that gives it any real meaning. The various exploits of Thetans in the past trillions of years, their lila, or sport, is the games that they play. I think that was a song from the 70s, wasn't it? Uh, to keep their board, boredom at bay. And so uh, this is basically what happens. So here's an auditing session from a person who is going to figure out what their Thetan did in a past life. And their Thetan is supposed to be a couple inches in diameter, and it, it's in the middle of your skull is what they say. It's kind of like your spirit. And this pre-clearer says he was on Mars. He's holding onto the E-meter. Without a body, 469,476,600 years ago. He's creating havoc, destroying a bridge and buildings. The people were called by an alarm to the temple, and the preclare went and broke the back pew at the temple tower. He wandered into town and saw a doll in a window and got entrapped inside the doll, trying to move its limbs. People seized it, beat it up, <laughs> I'm sorry, threw the doll out of the window, dropped 30 feet. The doll was taken roughly to the temple and was zapped by a bishop's gun while the congregation chanted, God is love, God is love. When the people left, the doll, out of control, staggered out and was run over by a large car and a steamroller. It was then taken back to the bishop who ordered it to be taken in a truck or a wagon to dig trenches or ditches for 2,000 years. The whole incident took nearly 2 million years. Then it was taken and the body was removed and the PC or the preclare was promised a robot body. The Thetan or PC went up to implant station and was put into an ice cube and went by a flying saucer and was dropped off at planet ZX-432. Wow. 
I mean, this is what I think has happened with some individuals, sadly, who are trying to come up with stuff to please these auditors. And I'll tell you what, it creates a weird sickness in people, a psychological sickness. A thetan, from the Greek word theta, which means thought or life, is the immortal spirit of uh, individuals. And so these immortal spirits are reincarnated over and over again into interplanetary life forms. They don't realize that they are trapped in a universe they mentally emanated to amuse themselves. This immortal spirit has been so damaged by engrams it has forgotten that it is an immortal thetan. So it needs to realize again its true nature and power to be divine. Sound familiar? God knows in the day you eat of it, Genesis 3, 5, you'll be as gods, knowing good and evil. Doesn't every religion seem to end up right back here? You'll be as a god. You'll be able to elevate. You'll be able to control your own destiny. You'll go to OT8, uh, eight levels above clear. You'll be an operating Phaeton. You can control your own environment, control your own destiny, etc., etc. There's nothing new under the sun. Hubbard also taught a form of Darwinian evolution where he laid out various life forms in his book, Scientology, A History of Man. Hubbard often roots the problems for today's Scientologists in engrams collected from past lives. Many common activities also result from past lives. The first stage of life is the photon converter, which converted light into energy as its main function. The photon converter had nothing to do at night, therefore that's why we need to sleep. And it goes on and on and on and on. And this is the idea of a thetan. Hubbard taught that Piltdown Man was part of the evolutionary chain for man. He called it man's first real manhood. Hubbard wrote of Piltdown Man in 1951, not knowing that two years later, in 1953, scientists said that Piltdown Man was a hoax. And so the foundation of Scientology, sadly, is just based on this faulty uh, bridge, if we can call it that, or foundation. And finally, and we'll open it up for questions in just a moment. If you go to the OT levels, if you make it up this board, this is called the Bridge to Freedom, and here's where you're trying to get. You go to Clear, and then here's the courses you got to take, and then you go to OT 1 and 2, and now they looks like they got it all the way up to 15 because you got to have more levels once you get to OT 8 and pay more money. Here's what you're trying to do. You're trying to climb this bridge to total freedom. So you got to take the next course. There was a man... He said uh, he got out of Scientology, but he was so battling with it that he was on the streets of San Francisco and just trying to drum up enough money to take one more Scientology class. He said he had to fight the temptation all the time. It was that kind of thing that was happening and is happening to individuals. When you get to the OT3 level, they introduce you to the secret of all secrets. It's Xenu, X-E-N-U. Xenu was... uh, a galactic leader that lived about 75 million years ago. And uh, he, Xenu was in charge of all the planets in, the, in this part of the galaxy, including planet Earth. In those days, Earth was called Tegiak. Xenu had a problem. All of the 76 planets he controlled were overpopulated. Each planet had an average of 178 billion people. So he wanted to get rid of the excess population, so he formulated a plan. Now get this, many people don't even reach OT. Three, but when you reach OT3, this is what you're told is the secret of all secrets. With the help of renegades, Xenu took complete control and defeated the good people and the loyal officers. 
Then with the help of psychiatrists who are bashed on all the time by Scientologists, he called billions of people for income tax inspections. But they were instead given injections of a paralyzing mixture of alcohol and glycol. Then they were put into space planes that looked exactly like DC-8s, except they had rocket motors instead of propellers. The DC-8 space plane flew to planet Earth where the paralyzed people, numbering in the hundreds of billions, were stacked around the bases of volcanoes. When everyone had pile, been piled up on Tegiak, H-bombs were lowered into the volcanoes. Xenu then detonated all the H-bombs and everyone was killed. The story doesn't end there, though. Since everyone has a soul or a thetan in this story, Xenu had to trick the souls into not coming back because of the overpopulation. So while the hundreds of billions of souls were blowing around by nuclear winds, in the nuclear winds, he had special traps that caught the souls in electronic beams. The electronic beams were sticky like flypaper. After he captured all these souls, he had them packed into boxes and taken to huge cinemas. <sighs> Sorry. There the souls had to spend days watching special 3D motion pictures that told them lies about what life should be like. These films confused them and tricked them into believing things that were not true. They were shown false pictures and were told false things, including stories about, you guessed it, Christianity, Judaism, Islam, and other religions. In this story, this process is called implanting. When the films ended and the souls left the cinema, they began to stick together in groups and they were all confused and believed things about the world that were actually not true according to L. Ron Hubbard because they had to watch these movies over and over and over again. Now the Thetans are confused about what the world's about and so they got to climb the bridge to total freedom to really realize that that's not what the world's about. You're a Thetan, true and true, and you just climb this bridge to freedom and you got it. And you, you will climb these levels to freedom. Now, let me ask you this question. Who makes you truly free? His name is Jesus. He said, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. You've got to feel for a Scientologist. Because they get into this, this uh, system, a lot of self-effort. They say that some of these courses were beneficial in some practical things. And they, they have this drive. I, I got to get to the next level and the next level because I can be free and I'm going to free the planet and I'm going to free my family. And all the while, many of them, maybe 75% of them come from a Christian background where Jesus said, if you come to know me, I will make you free. And they get put into bondage in a system with all these cultic tendencies and it's just Flat out sad. So I hope tonight, even with the stuff that I shared with you tonight, you will have compassion. See, we need to learn about this stuff to have compassion on people and not to make fun of them, but just to say, you know what? There is freedom and it's found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And let me tell you, part of my motivation tonight was I'm hearing these stories on the A&E channel and I'm not hearing anybody saying that they ended up at a Christian church and have found the truth of Christ. What I'm hearing is people cursing and almost being inoculated to the gospel and the hope of Jesus because they think maybe all religions are racket now and the devil is so sly because he gets people wounded in these systems. It takes them years to recover and do you think it's going to be easy for them to darken the door of a church now? My goodness. You see what we have here, folks? We have people who have been manipulated and lied to, and they almost become inoculated 
to the gospel, and many of them, when they hear about an afterlife or that kind of thing, they wonder, could that be true? They hear about reincarnation. The Bible doesn't teach reincarnation. It says it's appointed unto a man to die once, and after this comes the judgment. If you believe you're going to live millions of lives, well, then it's no big deal what happens here. But if you believe that you have one life and you're going to stand before God after that life, it makes a difference. And the devil's lie is, oh, you'll be reincarnated over and over again. Do you know they do surveys in Christian churches and there's a lot of professing Christians that believe in reincarnation and you're like, what? Have you read your Bible? You get to live once and after that you stand before God. And if you know Christ, you'll live forever, amen, in his presence, praise God. But here's people banking on these past lives and future lives, and all the while, Jesus is the bridge to freedom. All you have to do is erase everything that's on that sheet of paper and say the bridge to total freedom and just put the name Jesus on there because there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Amen? Amen. Father, we, we pray over those who are in Scientology, those who have come out. I pray that those who have come out, and there's many, Lord, will find their way to the true bridge between man and God. His name is Jesus. There's one God and one mediator, one go-between, one bridge between God and man. That is the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for us all. Thank you that you shed your blood to set us free, Lord Jesus. Thank you that you came down to rescue us. We are so grateful for the gospel of grace that we're saved by grace through faith. This is not of ourselves. It's a gift of God. It is not by works so that no one can boast. And Lord, we want some good endings for these folks that have come out. And I pray that true witnesses for Christ will stand up and say there is a way of hope. There can be hope for your heart tonight. With your head and heart bowed, if you've come here tonight, maybe you're invited by a friend and Maybe you've dabbled in some of these areas and man, you're confused and maybe you're even broken and it's hard to admit you've been duped. But Jesus Christ is the seeker and the one who saves the lost and if you would come to him tonight, he'll save you as a free gift. He'll give you the way to freedom. He is the way to total freedom. His name is Jesus. So if you're here tonight and you've not met him, just say Jesus. Cry out to him right now. Save me. Lord, save me from the lies of the enemy. I believe you're the truth, the way, the truth, and the life. I believe you died on the cross for me. I believe you rose from the dead, and I trust you and you alone for my salvation as my Lord and Savior. I repent of trying to do it my own way, and I receive you, Jesus Christ. Be my God, be my Lord, and lead me where you want me to go. In Jesus' holy name I pray. Amen, amen. All right, we have a list of questions. I'm going to, wow, oh my goodness. Okay, so we had 22 questions submitted, and it's 7.53. So here's what I'm going to do. They highlighted some for me, and on a future broadcast of the Bible Answer Show, we'll deal with more of these questions. But here's the first one. How do I save my friend from Scientology? Well, I would say this. Love and compassion goes a long way. Um, here's where, if you begin to call the, if you, here's what Scientologists say. They say the moment you say to somebody, you're in a cult and you're brainwashed and you've been manipulated, they will completely think you're a nut. 
Most Scientologists believe that what they hold to is true. Now, some of them may have doubts, but if you go that tactic, you're in a cult, you got to get out of that, they're probably not going to listen to you. But if you pray for them and you show them the love of Christ, most people who are caught in movements like this say it was the love of Christians showing the grace of God, showing that unconditional love that they've never known before that will get them out. Prayer, showing the love of God, and of course, sharing the gospel, share the hope. Just say, look, can we have coffee? I just want to share with you the hope of Jesus. Tell them about grace. They know nothing of grace in this system. And that would be my best advice. Number two, who is their God? What do they call him? And do, does he have disciples? Their God is somewhat undefined in Scientology, but L. Ron Hubbard's closest statements say the God that you discover is within you pretty much. So it's the idea of a lot of the Eastern religions. You look from within. There may be a supreme being, but he goes undefined in Scientology. So their God is somewhat nebulous, but they're trying to attain Godhood-type status. Does he have disciples? Well, uh, I would just say that because it's so undefined, the disciples are really the disciples of the organization more than anything else. Third question. Why do they use the cross? Well, they don't use a cross. Their symbol looks like a cross, but it's not a cross. Some people say the symbol comes from Rasha Krushanism, which is just kind of a weird, eclectic mix of Eastern thought and New Age principles. Some say it has some... Um, uh, connections to the occult, some occult symbols. So it's really not a cross, but I think they intentionally tried to make it look at a, as, like a cross. And then it kind of has a star in the middle of it, and, but it's not a Christian cross. And of course, I told you that at the higher echelons of uh, Scientology, they, don't, they speak disparagingly of Christ himself. Next question. If all these celebrities have practiced for 20 to 30 years, what made them decide to get out and how do you leave? Well, what happened with a lot of these celebrities that they start, started to see when they got to the higher echelons of the group, they started to see the physical abuse. They started to see, uh, in Scientology, they practice something called disconnection. And if you, if you uh, leave the religion, they will call you an SP. That's a suppressive person. And they will start to go after you and even try to do malicious things against you and get you to disconnect from family members, wives. They instruct people to divorce their spouse if they leave Scientology. If you work for the C organization and you get pregnant, they ask you to get an abortion. They say, we want you to get an abortion because the baby will just be in the way of you doing Scientology. Many women confessing to forced abortions, multiple forced abortions in Scientology. So they begin to see the abuse and as I told you, on a weekly basis, people in the Hemet compound are saying people try to escape because they feel the pressure, they're manipulated. So that's what they see. It's not all the time the doctrine. That comes later. Then they see kind of the goofiness of the doctrine. But it's normally because of the practices, the abuse, the shunning, the... Uh, disconnection, the broken families, the forced abortions. You, got, you have to divorce that person because now they've left the religion. They're a suppressive person. And uh, David Miscavige's father came out of Scientology because David Miscavige gave his dad a Kindle. And he was able to get on the internet, which is not allowed for Scientologists. And he Googled Scientology expecting to see a bunch of positive stuff. And he saw all this negative stuff. And 
his eyes were opened. So there's a number of different ways, but uh, they leave with great difficulty. Let me just say that. They leave with great difficulty and pressure, and detoxing can take years for them. Anybody who's ever been in a cultic movement, I think, understands that. Next, have you ever questioned, have you ever questioned about a Christian or ever thought about being in a different religion? Oh, that's a pretty personal question. So do Christians, you know, you start watching this kind of stuff and you go, gee golly, how closely have I examined what I believe? Do other people think I'm a nut? Do people think that what I believe is crazy? Some people do. But the question that you have to wrestle with is what is the reliability of your faith? Is it historic? Is it dependable? Is there evidence for the resurrection? Is there evidence for manuscript reliability? How good is the testimony of the eyewitnesses like James and John and Paul and others? See, you have a faith founded in fact, not science fiction. You have a faith that has been documented and evidence in the very history in which we are embedded, as Walter Martin liked to say. There's more evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, said Simon Greenleaf, than for any event of antiquity. So I go to sleep at night, resting my head, not only because I've had a personal experience with the Lord Jesus Christ, but also because of the evidential uh, stuff that's there for the historic Christian faith. Now, does that mean that Christians don't have doubts? Of course, I'm not going to say that. We all have our moments where we question things and we wonder, but look, every time I go back to look at the Bible a little bit closer, look at the evidence for my faith or my experience with Christ, I get reaffirmed in my faith, right? I'm not afraid to look at the evidence. I'm not afraid to read the critics. Whereas, you know, if a movement starts telling you don't do any internet searches on Christianity, I I would start to question that, wouldn't you? Hey, don't Google Michael Lance, please. Don't, Don't Google my name. Look, whatever's out there is out there. It should be able to stand the test. It doesn't mean there can't be false accusations, but you know what I'm saying. Don't be afraid to examine what you believe and why you believe it. I think that's reasonable. And finally, how do famous individuals like John Travolta and Tom Cruise put up with these ridiculous teachings, excessive cost, and abuse? Is there different ways of entry into this cult for those with money uh, and, and influence. Yeah, they target movie stars. So they try to, they've developed these celebrity centers. And what they say is, if you're a celebrity, they go in, they wash your car, they, they take care of you, they, they, may, they make you feel special, they'll do everything for you because they want you to be a face for the organization. Uh, other people have been uh, hoodwinked into Scientology through personality tests, front groups. I was even at the Tyler Mall one time and saw a kiosk for Scientology. And I saw a young man walk away from the kiosk with the book, and I went over to him and I said, do you have any Christian background? Because what you just grabbed is cultic, and please don't go there. You want to grab these people early, right? He was like, no, I don't have any Christian background. Get lost. (laughs) It was that kind of response. But I was watching this kiosk thinking these people have no idea what they're getting themselves into. 